Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the Pullmaps Political Science Podcast, our series of conversations with scholars working in the Middle East. Uh, with us today is Dr. Carter Malkasian. He's the author of a new book, Illusions of Victory, The Anbar Awakening and the Rise of the Islamic State. Uh, Carter, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. So this is a really interesting book because you've been involved in uh, in Anbar and dealing with counterinsurgency for over a decade. And this is one of the first books that I've seen that really gets into really thinking through how exactly uh, the counterinsurgency was working on the ground and what was really happening with the Anbar awakening. So tell us a little bit about what you saw when you went into Iraq and what you think really happened with the rise of this Anbar awakening. So th- um, th- thank you very much, and th- thank you, thank you for the compliments there. So when I was um, when I was first in Iraq, this would have been uh, 2004, and I was a civilian advisor working with the Marines, and this was the time of the first and second battles of Fallujah, a time in which the insurgency at the time had control of a great parts of, of Anbar province. Uh, they were conducting IED attacks, ambushes, controlling large parts of cities at that time. Uh, we fought some major battles with them then. And I came back again in 2006 and spent more time again with the Marines there and ended up spending a lot of time focusing on Ramadi then. Mm-hmm. And seeing what was happening there. And again, it was a very difficult time. And at that time, you could also see that uh, what we then called Al-Qaeda in Iraq, or AQI for short, was gaining a lot of control in areas. And so, how are they doing that? How, how are they gaining control? So AQI was able to get influence among the population. They had influence for a variety of reasons. So part of it was that they were able to offer people opportunity, as strange as, as, that, as that may sound. Um, so if one is working in Ramadi and you're a mechanic or an air conditioner repairman, you could go ahead and join Al-Qaeda in Iraq, lay in IEDs for a while, then go on and maybe take charge of an IED cell, then maybe after that go on to become in charge of a whole of, of several cells. And this is actually the story of some of their leaders, such as Abdul Khattab. Um, in that area. So that's one way that they were able to attract people. Mm-hmm. The other way is their violence gained them notoriety. Um, because they were so violent, because they were willing to attack things and to be aggressive, for young men who wanted to join a fighting mm-hmm. force, they could become uh, something that was, was an attraction to, that, to, to those forces. And you distinguish between AQI and the resistance yes. more broadly. Yes. Um, because, of course, there was a much larger environment of insurgency. Yes. And so is that, is that what really set AQI apart, was the violence and the opportunities? Or was, or was there something which they offered which the other resistance factions didn't? Um, so, I mean, there's kind of two things one can see that they were offering that the other resistance factions couldn't. As AQI expanded, and it started taking advantage of the black market, um, and it started and it was able to get in international funding as well, they were able to have influence and pay that the resistance groups did not, because the resistance groups were more tribally connected. Um, and to a certain extent, they were connected to certain Islamic groups, but they were really more tribally connected. And those sheikhs and other groups and former military that were there, they didn't have the consistent access to resources um, that AQI would have. And you also have to put into a certain extent that because AQI wanted to establish an Islamic state and because they were pressing Islam so hard, 
that gave them a little bit of a leg up on the, uh, on the other groups. And AQI had an ability to have a universal appeal, whereas any tribal leader's appeal is confined to his particular tribe. It makes it much more difficult for them to, to gather adherence. A lot of the book actually focuses on the tribes and tribal dynamics, which you see is very much at the center of what was happening in the Sunni community there. So walk us through a little bit about how the tribes responded to AQI and how that turns into the awakening. So the tribes at first with AQI, they kind of go along with it. Uh, because they're supporting the resistance to, to, to a great deal, and they're not trying to get in a fight with AQI. Their focus is more against the United States and fight, fighting the occupation. Over time, that starts to change. It changes for a variety of reasons. So one reason is that AQI starts to impinge on their black market activities. Um, and particularly, certain tribes really depended on the roads going to Jordan and Syria to, to get money. Um, and a extortion or just smuggling things back and forth. And AQI, as they, as they were able to control more, were able to take over parts of that system and make it more difficult for those groups to, to gain money. So that becomes a, a threat to those tribes, it becomes, to those tribal leaders, a threat to their ability to control, uh, their, to, to control their people, control their area. Um, and so also, as AQI gains influence in the cities and gains influence in some urban or rural areas, that threatens tribes who traditionally had a lot of power and traditionally had, been, had an ability to control what was going on in the area. So you start seeing a greater reaction against AQI uh, because of that. Now, the other thing that you have to lay on top of this is the context of Shia and Sunni competition inside of Iraq at the time. Um, and this really, of course, gets going after February 2006. Mm -hmm. But even before that, it's there. When I was there in 2004 and, and in early in 2000, and, and well, when I was there in 2004, we heard quite frequently that Sunnis wanted to have a military force to protect themselves. Sometimes it would be a division, sometimes it would be a brigade. Um, eventually it got turned into a National Guard unit or, or um, Sunni, Sunni militias to protect them. So it would come in different forms, but it was a consistent thing that they wanted. And they wanted that, I think, charitably, they wanted it to protect themselves against um, in any kind of Shi incursion. Less charitably, and something that other people would argue, would, or, well, and I don't exclude this argument, that well, maybe they wanted it because they, in the future, might want to get more, more power for themselves in the government. It's but, the classic yeah. security dilemma, right? <laughs> it can go both ways. Yeah. Um, so they, So in that framework, once the Civil War gets going, Al-Qaeda, um, working constantly with Al-Qaeda, becomes a little bit more of a question. Uh, because if working with Al-Qaeda just means constant fighting, and the Shia are going to become stronger and stronger, then that added some motivation to, well, if we don't, if we don't work with them, if there's another way to get military forces for us, maybe that's the thing to do. So in, so in the, the kind of theoretical argument between uh, whether it's mostly material interests versus ideology that's driving things. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you come down on the material interest side, the black markets, the struggle for power inside the local communities. That, yeah, so I, I do. Uh, and now, I don't want to exclude some of the ideological parts of it. I and mean, when you talk about, like, the, um, I mean, there's, let's say there's, if, if we, there was a common argument that was put forward by the people who originally um, take the awakening forward um, that they were upset with AQI, 
they were upset with what they were doing to the people. They were upset with the vi- ex- upset with the violence that mm-hmm. AQI was perpetra- uh, perpetrating against them. Um, and they were also upset with AQI's version of Islam, that they found that to be that they found that to be incorrect. So there's a, a few things I would say about those about those things. The AQI no doubt was brutal. AQI no doubt went after leaders who were standing up against them, and that brutality did fuel the tribal leaders to react to 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 increase their reaction against it. In a tri- in the tribal culture of taking vengeance, if your father is killed or your brother is killed, you're you're obligated to act against that. Um, and that well, that degree of that obligation varies for for across mm-hmm. a variety of factors, but that is going to increase the intensity of the resistance uh, to of the uh, awakening against AQI. But the thing to remember here is that the people that AQI targeted, they targeted them because they were criticizing or going against AQI. So the causality goes yeah. the other way. <laughs> yeah, and so I don't want to make it also a perfect linear causality because yeah. all this stuff is interdependent and interacts with each other. But if you look at someone like Sitar, Sitar is the famous leader of the Awakening who eventually yeah. in September 2006, he's the one who really stands things up. Um, and he's the one who, who takes things forward to get the Awakening that, that, that happens and then blossoms yeah. into, into something bigger. Um, Sitar's father, Bazia, was killed. In November 2005, there's some debate about the date, but the best information I have is sorry, November 2005, um, is killed by AQI. His father had already been arguing against AQI, had already been calling for militia-type forces to be formed against them. Um, so in terms of how the causality works, yeah. it looks like there was, there was already an issue there. And then the last, the last point I make here is that um, in terms of them disliking AQI's version of Islam, I absolutely believe that's true. I absolutely think that's the case. But analytically, what I have trouble doing is separating that away from the material part of what's happening. Um, because if I run a, if I do a counterfactual in my head, you know, something highly mm-hmm. scientific, um, and I say, okay, so let's say there wasn't any material impingement upon the tribes, yet there was this ideological issue going on. I have a hard time saying the ideological issue alone would have been sufficient. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, there, there's there's some sections in the book where you also kind of say you, you tried to track down whether any these things actually happened. Yeah. And it's hard to do, but yeah. that cuts both ways, right? Because the way information flows inside of Iraq at this time, there's rumors everywhere, there's psychological yeah. operations everywhere, and if you're an average Iraqi, how do you know what to believe? Um. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you're an average Iraqi, how, how you know what to believe. I think they, they hear the same kind of rumors and the same kind of stories that we do, and that can change with mm-hmm. how they're perceiving AQI. And so certainly, um, the awakening movement, as it got going, was very good at what we would call information operations, was very good at telling their story and what was happening, very good at, at um, exaggerating. Well, I don't want to say it like that. Um, and, and, clear, I, and I know get, what you mean, it, though. It's like they're, they're spreading the information yeah. that's going to push people to their side. Right. I mean, highlighting AQI atrocities. Mm-hmm. Um, highlighting and perhaps which making what, them bigger than they smart. were. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they're trying to play things in that direction, and AQI, of course, is trying to spread its own uh, propaganda what's happening. So then one of the things which then is interesting in the book, then, is that you argue that in many ways the way the awakening unfolds carries within it the seeds of its own defeat. Yeah. That um, it that yeah. you know actually 
it changes tribal dynamics in ways that were unsustainable. Yes, yeah, and I think this is also something you historically see with the efforts of us, the West, to work with, with tribes. Um, so what was happening was that this small elite, um, Sitar and, and, and those tribal leaders and other tribal leaders later on, they were being empowered to be able to fight AQI. Um, we were helping them with that, and, and I'm not trying to dispute the, the wisdom of doing that at all. Um, and so they were, uh, we were helping them, assisting them to get pay, um, and with the pay then came, you know, ability to, mm -hmm. to funnel through the police to get weapons. We were assisting them with civil affairs projects um, that then enabled them to better span, expand their influence through their own tribe. Um, we were helping them with protecting themselves. You know, the famous case is Sitar's house had a tank outside of it. <laughs> um, and that's a bit of an exaggeration because really, it was really usually much more low-key than that and just having radio communication. Mm -hmm. Uh, to U.S. forces you can call in so you can get an airstrike to help you if you're under attack. That, that alone is very, very important. You don't need the tank for all that. But all of these things helped give them power, give them an ability to control their tribe and control what was happening in the area. Um, so, and, and of course our presence helps with that too. We're not, so we're not empowering tribes, we're empowering specific that's leaders right. within specific tribes. That's right. Yeah, no, that, and that's, that's, I mean, I don't want to get too complicated into the dynamics of tribes, but a tribal leader doesn't naturally lead a tribe, or it doesn't naturally control his whole tribe. In Iraq, they have more control over a tribe than they do in Afghanistan, but there's different subsections, there's different groups, different family members, and they can all go in different directions. And so we're picking winners. Right. Well, we are, we are picking the winner there. Uh, and, and we're empowering those so they can bring their tribe together, plus they're going to have, as they get more influence, they'll have influence to a certain extent, with, well, they'll have influence in the province itself in terms of how all the tribal dynamics are working. All right, so we leave. Um, and as when we, and even before we leave, as we're drawing down, um, it's not as if the tribal leaders had the 100% um, love and affection of all the Ambar people. In fact, there's some polls done. There was a poll in 2007, I think, that said only 23% of the people trusted their, uh, trusted their tribal leader. <laughs> um, so there still is a great deal of skepticism about the United States, about what was called occupation, um, and not this a huge popular groundswell in terms of let's back all these tribal leaders. In fact, one of the tribal leaders, and this is, in, I forget what, what article this is, and it talks about, I think it was in the New York Times or Washington Post, maybe it was the LA Times, uh, said uh, one, of the, one of the leaders in Ramadi had spray-painted across the street, Street of the Lackeys. <laughs> um, so even within Ramadi and in their own areas, there were some questions there. All right. So that goes on like that. They're still able to have some degree of control as their alliance with the government remains. The degree of their victory was big enough mm -hmm. that they could continue doing that. Now eventually Maliki, um, he starts reducing the amount of support and starts doing things to upset the Sunnis, most famously with his uh, attempt to arrest his own vice president. Um, after that he continues to try to arrest people um, and he's, as he, as he when he um, arrests Rafi al-Asawi, in Ambar, who's a famous Ambar hero, that creates a lot of reaction and gets a lot of the tribes to have to uh, support the protests that are going on. So the tribes get in the, themselves in this very difficult position. They can decide that they want to stay uh, with the government, but if they decide to do that, their own people will question them because they'll be supporting the government that's oppressing Sunnis. 
So that doesn't really work for them. So most of them back the protests. But backing the protests also causes you a problem. By backing the protests, you're breaking with the government. Breaking with the government means those funds you need, the support of the military you need to control your people, that is not there at all or to, to a much lesser degree. Now, you're also opening everything up to protests. As you open everything up to protests, that means the tribe leader is no longer the sole pe person talking to the tribesmen or the people of, of Ambar. Now other people have a chance to talk. Politicians, religious leaders, and eventually the Islamic State. Because the Islamic State sees this as an opportunity, and they're able to come into these protests as well. They're able to show their flag, they're able to march, uh, march about, uh, give speeches. And so in the words of one, one tribal leader, who I'm, I'm sure I'll mess up the, the quote, but he said basically, the, the question confronting every tribal leader in Ambar was, how do I stand up against the Islamic State if that means siding with the government and siding against you know, Islam? And mean, I mean, he didn't mean Islam in terms of all Islam. He meant the, the, mm -hmm. this group that was proclaiming itself to, 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 to be that. So they had this dilemma, and they went a certain direction, and they ended up losing more power because they had to go with the protests. And that gave uh, Al -Qaeda, or Islamic State, which was Al-Qaeda in Iraq, now the Islamic State, a uh, wedge to get in. I know that's a lot of information in 10 minutes or so, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, this, this is really important, though, because let's bring it back now, like the title of the book and the overarching, you know, kind of policy relevance yeah. or intellectual relevance here is this illusions of victory, where that, you know, when a lot of the first wave of books and articles that were written about the Anbar Awakening, it was very almost triumphalist in tone. This yeah. was about yeah. how the surge succeeded or the awakening succeeded, and this book actually really complicates that, you know, yeah. suggests that yeah. this was not such a victory. I mean, certainly it did, uh, you know, impose great losses on, on oh, Al-Qaeda, no, no yeah. question about that. But looking over the longer term, neither the, Islam the Islamic State wasn't defeated permanently. That's right. And the awakening leaders who, you know, vaulted into this position weren't able to sustain it yeah. and end up losing politically. And so... What are the lessons of that beyond just the uh, the Iraqi case? I mean, what 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 do we need to take away from this in terms of thinking about things like the lessons of the Anbar awakening, the lessons of our right. counterinsurgency strategy? You know, what, what should we take away from this? So, just as you said, Anbar was taken in oh nine, uh, ten, etc., to be the great tipping point, the point where we changed the direction of what was happening in 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 Iraq, basically, because what happened in Anbar then spread. Well, spread through General Petraeus and, and, mm -hmm. and many of his wise actions, uh, spread further on. But when we look at it today, that tipping point doesn't look like that. So whereas back then we said, well, we should use uh, this Ambar model, this Ambar example. Let's do the same thing in Afghanistan. Um, let's do the same thing in Syria. Now I think if you look at it in retrospect, it should be much harder to apply it like that. Because what the... What we see here is that instead of being the example of success, Anbar is the example of how success in these kind of environments is fleeting or evanescent. So it was still um, trapped by, the, by sectarian, tribal, even religious forces. It was, you know, the direction of Iraq was very much set by those forces, and they were not sensitive to a few years of our involvement. So what it says as a singular example is that if one wants to keep 
change existing that kind of requires a long-term commitment. And I don't know what size of commitment that mm -hmm. means mm -hmm. on, I'm not trying to say hundreds of thousands of people, and it may mean no one, it may just mean money and good observation, but it requires a commitment. Um, if you want those changes that are being exacted by our intervention to exist, to, to continue. And so what this means larger is that instead of being the example of success, AMBAR remains a critical case. Because if something came this close to making a difference, was this big, and we all thought it was this important, and it didn't actually get there, then what AMBAR should be is the, uh, our def a definition of the limits of success a definition of how far you should expect things to go. Maybe there's other cases in the future that will say more, and I don't mean to take this to generalize entirely off it, but the case is important because it was so because it was so close to being, or it appeared so successful at the time. And you do a nice job of walking through, you know, the, the debates that everyone has had about was it the surge or was yeah. it the tribal uprising, and I think you do a very nice job of showing the interaction yeah. between all of these uh, these factors. But really, the, the, the conclusion then, is just, it's just really striking, though, that this was a very transient success, and... So what, I mean, what I'd like to have um, people take away from, what, it, what, people, what I want people to take away from this is I think this should give us pause when we're thinking about future interventions. So when we're going into an intervention, we should be thinking, well, if we're going to be putting troops there, we're going to have to have something there for a long time. That means the cost, even if it's small every year, over time, because we're really talking about a decade or more here, that cost is going to go up. And when you see that, that should make us question if we should go in in the first place. That should make us question if whatever is at stake in this conflict, whatever attack we think is going to occur on the United States, that we should make a careful judgment is, is it really that bad to warrant this kind of commitment or a very long commitment? Can't we manage this? Can't we be resilient? Can't we take whatever this, this threat is? And don't assume there's going to be a cheap and easy victory. Yes, exactly. So you, we should not assume there will be a cheap and easy victory. In those cases where we think the threat is big enough and we need to do something about it, we should be looking to strategies that are thrifty, that can be employed over a long time, versus something that's big and expensive that we can't manage for a long time. Because as we draw that down, those successes aren't going to last. Some of them may last. But a lot of them will go away, as we don't have the ability to affect what's happening on the ground to the same extent. And then the, the last part of that is when we're thinking about, the flip side of it is, when we're thinking about withdrawal from someplace, we should understand that what we've, where things are when we're withdrawing probably won't stay at that level. It'll probably get worse. So we shouldn't have rosy predictions mm -hmm. of, well, there was an AMBAR awakening, and that means that AMBAR is forever going to be safe and, and sound. We should realize that that's not that that's unlikely to be true. We came in as an outside force and changed dynamics, and as we leave, those dynamics are to go back or have a strong chance of going back to the way they were. Let me ask one last question: Do you get a sense that uh, these kinds of lessons have taken root within the counterinsurgency community, or are these kind of heretical views at this point? Well, I hope I don't have heretical views. <laughs> um, someone once did say to me it. Well, yeah. So I hope they're not heretical. I hope they're not heretical views. Um, so, yes, some of this is being taken on. So I think if you talk to generals in the military today, um, there you'd get a much greater degree of skepticism about what one can attain. Um, a much much more worry about 
what if what we're doing here is it going to last? When are these things going to change? Can there be success? And I think you'll have much more skepticism of you can have complete victory. And so, so there's there's real rethinking going on about uh, what coin can and can't accomplish. Well, I'd say, well the thing that, so I'd say there's really real rethinking on our interventions and how we should intervene in places. And I mean you can see it's partly an Obama strategy um, uh, mm-hmm. th- through uh, th- through dealing with ISIS about working through the Iraqis. Um, not putting a large number of troops on the ground. So you can see a change has occurred there. Now, counterinsurgency has become a bad word. Um, and I'd say that happened sometime in 2011, it became a bad word. Um, so no one really says they're doing counterinsurgency anymore. Um, even if what a lot of this is, is still counterinsurgency, it's just not the heavy kind of counterinsurgency that was done previously. It's much lighter, you know, indirect. Um, so I think there is a change there. It may be a while before academics and others can now step back and look back and say, okay, so we've had this change in thinking of counterinsurgency. We started with like this Vietnam era counterinsurgency. We did the surge stuff. We thought that was working well. We then discovered that was too expensive, and we shifted to something else. I mean, there has been a change in thought on counterinsurgency. It just hasn't been uh, written up yet. Well, thanks a lot. We've been speaking with Carter Malkasian. He's the author of the new uh, book, Illusions of Victory, The Anbar Awakening and the Rise of the Islamic State, just published by Oxford University Press. Uh, Carter, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Thank you very much.